You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students about their research here on campus and around the world. Today, I am joined by molecular and cell biologist Phil Clevis. Did I say that right? Yep, Phil oh, Clevis. Yeah, thank you, Phil. Uh, yeah, MCB, that's what they call it, right? That's right, yeah. Can MCB. you? Can you tell us what molecular and cell biology is? So molecular and cell biology is kind of a broad field that incorporates a lot of different types of research, ranging from protein molecular biology to organismal molecular biology. But it's all basically grounded in the idea that we want to understand how life works at, um, at the molecular level. So when you say molecular level, how is that different from like, you know, I'm an integrative biology. There's all these different kinds of biology. So what is molecular exactly? You know, it's not really this completely different, but there's there's people in molecular biology that do, like I said, a lot of different types of work. But, you know, most of the labs are focused on looking at genes, molecules, how molecules interact with each other and um, to make a biological process happen. But it's a, it's a very broad field and a very broad department. Okay, so all sorts of work going on, uh, mostly at this micro level, right? Smaller right. Small components. Small components, uh, what's happening inside of cells um, at the genetic level and you know, what, what components are driving how cells move. Okay, and did you... Did you like come out of the womb interested in biology or? Yeah. So when I was, when I, f- what first got me into biology was kind of what a lot, gets a lot of people into biology, but just that there's an amazing amount of diversity in the world. And if you look, uh, I like marine biology and I've like scuba diving and, and the very first time I went scuba diving was when I was around 12 years old. And I went underwater, and I was just amazed by how many different types of fishes, the colors, the um, different types of coral. And that really astonished me. And, I, and I, I felt like I wanted to spend the rest of my life studying how those animals came to be and, and, and what makes them different from each other. In terms of molecular biology, I've, I got into molecular biology later in my career, mostly from working in different labs as an undergrad at the University of Arkansas. But definitely the major driver was all the different beautiful types of animals in the world. So are you from Arkansas? I'm originally from Arkansas, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So scuba diving, where, you weren't doing that in Arkansas. Yeah, no. Uh, especially, so I went to the undergrad at the University of Arkansas. And like you said, it's landlocked. There's not very many opportunities to go scuba diving. But during the summers, I went to different camps and courses, one in Bermuda, one in Galveston, Texas, in the Gulf of Mexico. And I did a lot of diving there, you know, and, and also learning about marine biology. But one of the kind of hallmark experiences that I had and that, that got me into marine biology as, a, as an undergrad and, and kind of like solidified this idea that I want to study organismal diversity is um, I spent about seven months in Australia doing courses, but then also doing an independent research project on the Great Barrier Reef. And that was pretty cool. Wow. So was that through your university? Yeah, it was for, I was in the Honors College at the University of Arkansas, and they have a great program where they partially fund or completely fund undergrads to go do research abroad or to study abroad. And, um, and I also got a Barry Goldwater scholarship that allowed me to um, basically have funding to go to Australia and, and live. And you said you were doing research when you were there, right? Yeah, I was working at the Australian Insti- Institute for Marine Science. And one of the cool things that I had always been interested in was this phenomenon of coral bleaching. 
And that's when corals are these animals, these sessile animals at the bottom of the ocean. They're very colorful. You've probably seen them in pictures of uh, scuba diving pictures. But the cool thing about these animals is that they have algal cells that live inside of their animal cells. And those algal cells are really important for the survival of the coral. And those algal cells undergo photosynthesis and give energy in the form of uh, photosynthate to the animal cells. And when the water temperature gets above a few degrees above what the actual uh, normal temperature of the water is, then the, the coral seem to expel their algal uh, symbionts, and that leads to something called coral bleaching, and the corals die. And so this is uh, something that a lot of people are concerned about because of global warming, the loss of these these and these corals that make up a lot of the microenvironments in the, in the ocean. And so when I was in Australia. I was working on trying to understand how that coral bleaching process happens um, on uh, on the Great Barrier Reef, and we would take seaplanes to islands, collect coral, bring them back to the Australian Institute for Marine Science, and do experiments on them to try to understand something fundamental about how these animals interact with their endosymbiotic algae. So when you're doing those experiments, that's living coral, then? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So we would we would be very careful and go out. And um, you know, dive or, or snorkel, collect the corals, bring them back into the lab, where we could um, expose the coral to different temperatures and and see if we can induce bleaching where the the algal cells leave the coral. Okay, so I have this image of you a seaplane. Those are the ones with the, like the inflated. Uh, yeah, they have. Landing. Yeah, they land on the ocean and take off from the ocean. So. And they're small, right? That's just, right. Just yeah. a couple people, like That's so. It's right. very tropical, like shoved into a little right. plane, yeah. going in the middle of yeah. nowhere. Yeah, the cool thing was is that we would get to you know go to these research stations on on the on the Great Barrier Reef where they're they're relatively closed off to the public these are some of the most pristine coral reefs that exist on the planet and we get to go there and 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 study these corals that have have very minimal touch by human processes yeah and so uh, that was a, that was a really special moment yeah. and you must have seen some other animals too right yeah yeah um, one of the one of the <laughs> one of the craziest experiences since I was a, I was a newbie when I was doing this research just kind of a volunteer and one of the things we do as coral biologists is swim down the anchor so you grab the anchor and you you uh, you jump off the boat and you're supposed to swim it down because we don't want to crush the coral that we're studying because you know we're very um, conservation minded. And so um, I jump in the water in a wetsuit with this anchor, and down below I see this five- or six-foot shark. And I, like, immediately kind of just just panic. And I'm like, oh, man, below me there's this huge shark, what looked to me as a huge shark. And I'm on the surface dressed up in a wetsuit as a black silhouette making splashes. And I, you know, I panicked, and I, like, got back into the boat really quickly. And then then, um, pretty much the boat laughed at me. And, and said, that's ridiculous, get back in the water and drop the anchor. <laughs> but that was definitely um, one of the more memorable experiences encountering uh, animals other than coral. Wait, you, you left me like all <laughs> nervous for you. Was it a shark? It was a shark, yep, yep. Okay. It, was, it was a shark. And, uh, and I think... I think it was a. Um, it was unclear. I was pretty sure that it was a tiger shark, but it's there's a little, and that would be scary if it was a tiger shark because those are pretty aggressive. But um, you know, it was a. It was a moment of panic. And so they laughed <laughs> at you because you shouldn't have been worried, presumably, yeah, because they they see these things all the time. So interesting, and and just one... it was just it was just very close to me, and it was like a. a, a no, moment, I'd be scared. A moment. Be scared. It was, yeah. it, well, diving, you know, you see a lot of 
animals and usually it's really it's not a big deal but definitely just jumping in the water and like seeing it like a, a shark really close i felt um like it was a shocking moment. yeah more shock than than actually having anything to worry about no no i'm yeah. with you and does the anchor just like sink immediately are you yeah yeah you actually like carry the, the anchor down and so you um you know, swim down the anchor and place it in some sand rather than just letting it fall on some coral where it would break the coral interesting yeah. if you're just tuning in you're listening to 90.7 fm kalx berkeley my name is tesla munson and this is the graduates the interview talk show where we speak with uc berkeley graduate students about their work today i'm joined by phil clevis uh talking about marine biology and and so Mostly when I see you, you're like in a lab jacket, you're in this, you know, lab environment. I didn't really know that marine biology was one of your interests, but it makes sense in knowing what you study. Right. And so that's so I had this um, choice when I was trying to decide where to go to grad school. So I did this this um, Australia trip my junior year and I had a choice to do whether or not I should do a PhD in marine biology and continue coral work or should I do something else. And and one thing that I felt I wanted to really um, be able to do in my career was I wanted to be able to answer questions about animal diversity at the DNA level. So how do DNA changes make animals different from each other? And, and what's the molecular basis for the algal coral symbiosis? Those types of questions. And so And I was doing genetics research at the University of Arkansas in a chicken reproductive genetics lab in Dr. Doug Rhodes' lab. And I I realized that it actually would – it would be nice if I could get some experience studying molecular biology and genetics, um, understanding how animals work at at the genetic level as a Ph.D. student, and then apply those things back to marine biology or or something else. And so that that was the goal, and so I, I decided to come to UC Berkeley to join the molecular biology program to get training in, in, in molecular biology and genetic techniques with the idea of eventually applying to those to, to something else. So what do those techniques entail? Yeah, so there's um, in our lab, we work on stickleback, which is a type of fish that exists all over the northern hemisphere. And ancestrally, they existed as marine fish, but since the last ice age, when the glaciers receded over the northern hemisphere about 10 to 15,000 years ago, these marine fish migrated into newly formed freshwater lakes and streams all over the northern hemisphere. And so these marine fish have moved into these freshwater environments. And what has happened, and it's really surprising, is that these freshwater fish have evolved to these new freshwater environments. And so there's very different morphological differences between marine and freshwater fish and how they look and presumably in their physiology, their skeleton. And so what is cool and particularly interesting about sticklebacks is that what you can do is you can, even though the marine and freshwater fish are evolutionarily uh, morphologically different from each other, you can still cross them in the lab. And so you can still make a cross a marine fish to a freshwater fish and um, study the genetics of what's the DNA-based changes that make a marine fish different from a, a freshwater fish, which genes make you know the marine fish have uh, look the way it does versus the freshwater fish. And so in molecular biology, the types of things that we do in the lab are a lot of sequencing DNA of the marine and freshwater fish. We do do something called in situ hybridizations, which is a way for us to 
look at in an embryo or in, a, in a, an adult animal, look at where a certain gene is expressed in a certain set of cells. So um, genes control how animals look during development. For a large part, that orchestrates development. And so we can look at where certain genes are expressed at certain times with this in situ hybridization method. Um, and we do lots of other um, types of molecular biology ex- experiments. But um, really, the whole goal of our research program is to try to understand which genes and eventually which pieces of DNA make freshwater fish different from the marine sticklebacks. And so that's kind of the motivation. So you said you can cross them. I I assume that means like mating them, like that's reproduction. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we, that's a that's a, a sort of a genetics term for just um, making a cross or making a, a breeding a marine fish to a freshwater fish. Yeah. That's right. So does that mean that these morphological variations are the same species? Yeah. So so people argue about whether or not they're the same species or not, but they certainly can breed with each other in the lab, and also they breed with each other. And some populations breed with each other in the wild. So and make viable offspring. So these are offspring that can swim around and are perfectly normal fish, but just have part marine genome and part freshwater genome. Would it be possible to walk us through, in the simplest terms, how DNA relates to a gene and how that makes the final morphology? Yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's a big question. And that's, like, and that's, sort, of the, that's sort of the whole goal of developmental biology and particularly the type of evolutionary genetics that we do in the lab. And so we know that there are differences between marine and freshwater fish. So the whole point is really for us to understand, okay, these differences in how fish look, when does that happen during development? You know, so the organ, the the you know the fish grow up from little bitty baby fish, and so our ideas are, you know, when do the differences in how these fish look come about, and also which DNA changes are are important, which genes are important, and so um, for my thesis, what I've been working on is a, a a dramatic difference in tooth number between marine and freshwater fish. So freshwater fish have a two-fold increase in tooth number compared to their marine ancestors. And we think that's ecologically important because the freshwater fish have um, – we think they eat different things. And, and the, for instance, the freshwater fish seem to eat worms and clams and snails where the marine fish uh, presumably filter feed up in the water column, eat plankton and stuff. And so we think that this twofold increase in tooth number may be important for making uh, letting, letting the, fish, the freshwater fish um, access different prey. And so um, this was the, you know, this is the trait that I had been working on. And so what we can do is we can take a marine fish and, to, and, and breed it with a freshwater fish and get fish that are intermediate to the, to the marine and freshwater, and then cross them again, and so um, in cross the, the sons and daughters of that initial cross, to make a set of F2 fish that are, sorry, a set of, a set of grandchildren from that initial cross that have parts of their genome as marine, parts of their genome as freshwater, and they also have, some have lots of teeth like the freshwater grandparent, or some have very few teeth like the, like the marine grandparent. And what we can do is we can track in those, in those grandchildren which place of the genome did they get. Did they get the marine version of a place in their genome or the freshwater place in their genome? And ask which places of the genome correlate with how many teeth they have. So is there a statistical association between how many uh, teeth they have and a certain place in the genome? And when we find a statistical association, 
that tells us that something in that genomic region controls the difference between marine and freshwater tooth numbers. So, so what we can do then is we, we know that some, something in that genomic region is correlated with tooth number differences between marine and freshwater populations. And so um, that, that, that after we have that initial mapping, we can explore which genes are in that, in that region and try to make an association between these genes that are in the interval and tooth number development. And so that's kind of what we've been working on. So there must already be a map of the stickleback yeah. uh, genome. Yeah, so the, the genome has been sequenced by the Broad Institute and David Kingsley's lab at Stanford. And so um, it's actually pretty nice. They've sequenced not only several marine stickleback populations, but also several freshwater sticklebacks. And so that's a great tool. So then we can look. Now we have, now we have the map of the genome. We can look at our places that control differences in tooth number, and we can say, okay, what genes are in here? Which ones are, 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 are smoking guns for controlling the evolved difference in tooth number? So would you call stickleback a model organism, or is that different? Uh, it's, it, I think sticklebacks are a really great model organism for evolutionary genetics. And so this is, like I said earlier, I think this is one of the, uh, the rare cases where you have an organism that is very morphologically different from each other, populations that are very different from each other, but still close enough genomically and genetically where you can breed the two together and get viable offspring. Like you can't do that with with more distantly related organisms. Yeah. And I know you're like talking about DNA and genomics, and that's definitely newer techniques. But some of what you were saying reminds me a little bit of Mendelian processes with like the crossing and getting these. Is yeah. that something we can oh. like think of? No, absolutely. Like the basic genetic technique where we take a freshwater fish and breed it to a marine fish, and then in cross the the children of that cross to get grandchildren and then use those grandchildren to find which places in the genome control uh, a trait of interest, that is fundamental genetics. This, is, this goes back to uh, the, sort of the pioneers, Morgan, and sort of the pioneers of genetics. And that, that has really been done um, for, for, for decades. Yeah. So do you have any, like, you know, genes you can tell us about that you found? Yeah. Or? So, yeah so we just had a recent paper that was published, and it was primarily – showing that the, the evolved differences in tooth number that I've been telling you about, we actually found one place in the genome that has a really large effect on the two, two-fold tooth number differences that exist between marine and freshwater fish. And so um, this one place in the genome controls about 30% of the variance that you see between marine and freshwater fish. So in, in terms of evolutionary genetics, that locus is a, is a pretty large effect. And so what we did is we looked at genes in the interval, and we found that one of them is a really great candidate for underlying evolved tooth number differences. It's a gene called BMP6, or bone morphogenetic protein 6. So as the name implies, BMPs, or bone morphogenetic proteins, are sort of intimately involved in bone development. And so they are initially... Uh, isolated from the ability of scientists to grind up bones and inject the extracts from the bones uh, subcutaneously under a mouse skin. And, and those proteins that they are injecting have the ability to make bone on their own. So it's kind of 
you, you take bone juice and you inject it underneath the skin of a of a mouse, you can you, these these proteins will make bone, and so these are the master regulators of bone development. And it's also been shown by decades of research that these proteins are also really really important for making a tooth. And so just on first principles. This gene looked like a very, very good candidate for underlying these tooth number differences, these evolved tooth number differences between marine and freshwater fish. And so we actually sequenced the gene between marine and freshwater fish um, using um, DNA sequencing, and we didn't find any differences between marine and freshwater versions of the gene and actually the coding part of the gene that actually makes the, the bone morphogenetic protein. That was, that was interesting to us, and so we speculated maybe it's not something that's different in the sequence of the BMP6, but maybe it's how much of the protein's there, so how much of the gene is being expressed, um, and maybe that's, that's the difference between marine and freshwater fish. Maybe a, a difference in expression of BMP6 could underlie the difference in tooth number between marine and freshwater populations. And so we measured that. So we measured the messenger RNA expression of BMP6. So just uh, using a technique that allows us to distinguish the marine and freshwater versions in an F1 hybrid. So in a uh, individual that was a that's the son or daughter of a marine and freshwater cross. And um, what we found actually is that BMP6 is massively upregulated in the freshwater fish compared to the marine. And so remember, the freshwater fish have more teeth. And so we have this really nice correlation between this upregulation of BMP6 in the freshwater population. And it correlates really nicely in that when we see this upregulation is, is around the exact time when the tooth number differences are start to come about during development between the marine freshwater populations. And so we hypothesize that this upregulation of BMP6 is driving differences in tooth number between the two populations. So one of the things I'm getting from that is that, you know, the marine and the freshwater can both have the same gene and it can look exactly the same like if you looked at the DNA bases. That's right. But there can be differences in expression. That's right, yeah. And so um, it's actually been, that's sort of a major... Um, hypothesis in the field of evolution that morphological diversity is driven by changes in the timing and the levels of where genes go. And, and maybe that's because you can change the expression of a gene or the timing of an expression of a gene in a sp- specific tissue without destroying the function of the gene everywhere where that gene is expressed. And so BMP6 is expressed in many, many different places other than the teeth. And so we hypothesize that maybe if it has this upregulation in teeth, maybe that's that's a advantage over messing with the gene's function or deleting the gene or something from the genome, because that might have negative consequences for the fitness of the organism. So this could explain like those statistics that people know about how humans and chimps are like 99% related. So our DNA is 99% the same, but obviously there can be expression differences that result in these different uh, That's right. and, variations. And, and one thing I think it's, it's, it's important to point out is that we think that these expression differences are actually driven by changes in sequence surrounding the actual coding part of the gene. You know, so there's a coding and a non-coding part of the gene. What we've learned in genetics is that the expression and, and the amount of expression that we see in genes is largely controlled by 
uh, flanking sequence around the gene. So we now now what we're doing in the lab is we're and we're trying to find. So we now we know that there's this upregulation of BMP6, and that corresponds with this change in tooth number between these evolved uh, fish. And so what we what we really want to do is find the sequence, the DNA sequence differences around BMP6 that might be driving differences in tooth number and, and the expression differences. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students about their work. Okay, so one another thing, Phil, you, you mentioned BMP6 in your fish, and then you also mentioned mice. How, how much overlap? Can you look at a gene that mm. is in a mammal like a mouse and also in a fish? Yeah, that's one of the big breakthroughs that came out of studying developmental biology and genetics in the past few decades. And it's a really beautiful, beautiful um, result. And it turns out that organisms, flies, mice, humans, fish, they have um, very similar types of genes. So BMP6 is found in humans. It's found in mice. It's also members of a similar pathway are also found in flies. And so that was one of the huge breakthroughs is that that these genes um, that are found in humans and in mice and in fish are also found in, in many different types of organisms. And that makes sense because evolution, you know, it's, it's modification of existing genetic programs, and that's, that's how, it, how, it's, how it drives um, differences in morphology. So then it would make sense that we can um, do experiments on fish or on mice, for example, and that can still have relevance to humans because we share genes with them. That's right, and that's and that's sort of our motivation by studying sticklebacks and the evolved differences in tooth number is that maybe the things that we're learning in fish, you know, the role of BMP6 and the ability to change tooth number, maybe that will tell us something about how human tooth biology happens, how mouse tooth biology happens. And also, you know, how evolution happens as a whole. One thing that's really interesting is that this locus that we're studying, this BMP6 locus, is actually a locus, part of the genome that has been involved in cranial facial malformations in humans. And so it's unclear whether or not that at all has anything to do with BMP6 or other genes in the interval that could be involved. But it's interesting to think that this locus that we think is used in stickleback to change tooth number, maybe it's important and human development, too, and, and when changed in very dramatic ways can cause human birth defects. And so we hope to learn something about, about cranial facial development in humans and, and, and more broadly in disease. Yeah, no, that's really interesting stuff. So uh, earlier you mentioned to me that you have some undergrads working on the project. Is that yeah, true? Yeah, and this, this work is really hard. And so um, in the sense that it's we have to look at hundreds and hundreds and crosses, and these crosses we look at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fish. And so um, I've had the, the amazing luxury to have two very special undergrads work with me, Rachel and Monica, that, that have really helped with the crosses. And our lab in particular has several undergrads that have worked with us. And, and they're really crucial to helping us find out how evolution happens at the DNA level. And so we're definitely looking for undergrads to come work in our lab at, uh, at any moment. So. Yeah, and which lab is that? This is Craig Miller's lab. Uh, in, in the MCB department. Okay, so how do undergrads go about getting involved? Do they just email you? Yeah, or? so there's something called a URAP program, which is the Undergraduate Research Program, and, and the majority of people that we've had work with us have applied through the URAP program, and that's been very successful um, in, in getting us in contact with undergrads. 
there have been cases where people have contacted Craig or some of the grad students directly, but I think the URAP program is really the best way to get in touch if you want to do some research with us. Yeah. Are there any other sort of resources you might recommend for the public if they're interested in like DNA or, you know, molecular and cell biology? Yeah. So there's a lot of opportunities for the public to learn about research. There's, you know, all sorts of science blogs, Silence Daily. But the the one that I think if you want to learn about what's happening in our lab, but also other labs on campus is the Berkeley News Center. And that's um, a set of articles that basically keep you up to date with the type of research that's going on at, at UC Berkeley. And we actually had, if you want to learn more about our project, uh, we actually had a an article written about this this tooth number evolution um, project that we've been working on. And so um, that would be what I would suggest to do. Yeah, I saw it actually on the homepage. So congratulations. Yep. Congratulations on your article. Thank you. Very nice. Yeah. Um, we're just about out of time here. Do you have any like last words about your work or to the audience? Anything you want to say? I think that the real reason that I like doing what I'm doing as a graduate student researcher is that every single day I get to come in and ask questions about the fundamental nature of the world around us. And I get to sit down and do research and try to understand things that we don't know anything about and build upon stuff we do know things about. And so I think that that's what gets me up in the morning, and that's why I love it. So That's a very good reason. Um, yes, science. Science. Go, go science. Okay. Well, today I've been joined by molecular and cell biologist and uh, stickleback tooth expert mm-hmm. Phil Cleves and uh, – uh, MCB, yeah, Craig Miller's lab. And what, can you tell us what year you are? I am a sixth year graduating in December. Well, uh, congratulations again. Another <laughs> congratulations. Yep. So uh, sixth year in MCB. Again, thank you so much, Phil, for coming on The Graduates today. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. And yeah, you've just listened to another episode of The Graduates here on KLX 90.7 FM. It's the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students about their research here on campus and around the world. My name is Tesla Munson, and uh, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of The Graduates. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to KALX, Berkeley.